Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Neo Sampson, Vice President and Country Head of ISTA Solutions, a specialized business process outsourcing company. And in less than four years with Neo's help, they've experienced over 500% growth, growing from 120 staff to over 1,000. So I've asked Neo to join us here today, talk a bit about how they did it, his personal journey, and how we can learn from that to help our businesses and teams ex exceed expectations. So, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. How you doing, my friend? Good. Happy to be here, Daryl. Appreciate yeah. the invite. Happy to have you. And I know I, I didn't say it necessarily at the beginning, but you've got a long career in this industry and you've got a wealth of knowledge in that. And I think it's a really valuable topic because staff is a huge pain point for a lot of people. A lot of people, when they get into business, it's because they're good at something. And then all of a sudden they realize that they can't do it solo. So they have to build a team. That's a whole different skill set with its own challenges and problems. But before we get into any of that, I want to ask when it comes to running a business and leading people, how did you get started? Were your parents entrepreneurs? Were your parents leading teams and stuff too? Actually, I would say that not professionally. I think my parents, my, my mom was in the legal field. She was a legal secretary in one of the law firms in the country. And my dad is now a retired police officer. So when you look at their professions, they're really not into those types of things. But my best examples of relationship building when it comes to different people coming from different walks of life are from them. We like to talk about, it's very cliche that people say that sometimes you're not wealthy in, in money, but you're wealthy with people and the relationships that you build. And that is certainly the case when it comes to my parents. And I think that helped me a lot as far as my career trajectory from a leadership standpoint. Got it. Got it. So how did you get started? Like, what was your first kind of experience? As you said, I've been in the industry for quite some time. Without revealing my age, I've been in the industry. I'm just kidding. I've been in the industry for about 20 plus years. I started out as an agent like everybody else in the outsourcing industry. I think I could say that I probably did more years at the frontline level as opposed to other people that might have risen up the ranks. I, think mm -hmm. I spent about three years as an agent and I did everything possible as an agent. I did inbound, outbound, sales, email, tech support, customer service, you name it, I did it. Basically. That's fantastic. Yeah, because my mentality at that time is I want to learn everything there is to learn at that level um, because I felt like whatever it is, as I go up the ladder, that ex those experiences would become invaluable. And they certainly were because my first foray into any sort of leadership position was as a trainer. Mm. So basically I was training classes of people that want to get into the industry. And then I was just happy with that already because one class after the other, seeing them, seeing them prosper into their own careers, it was instant gratification. It was very easy to just accept the thank yous that people are giving you that they got their jobs because of you or they got, they got promoted because of you and things like that. That was fine. One of my managers at that time approached me about becoming a training manager or a training supervisor. And it didn't even sound to me as something that I wanted to do. Uh, I think one of the things that hit me when he spoke to me was, it's about multiplying your effect now. If you're yeah. able to impact class, 
I think it's a similar story from John Maxwell's book. If you're able to impact one class of 15, imagine if you have 15 trainers now, and now you could magnify your impact to 15 other classes from 15 other people. Yeah. And that kind of, that's how I got started in terms of becoming a leader, rising up the rack, continuing to grow. And I just kept that in, making sure that I understood that getting up higher is not about being more disconnected, no. but it's actually about making sure that your impact is magnified, multiplied on a larger scale. Yeah, I love that. I agree. That's actually how I got into business coaching and marketing consulting and that because I was growing my own martial arts school. And for me, the most rewarding thing was the testimonials from people. And I was helping because I was reinvesting everything I was making into my education and growing, learning how to grow my business. And I was helping my friends and I had a friend with a flower shop and she was being more successful and a buddy that was a mechanic and he was getting more clients to come back. And a buddy of mine actually got promoted. He was running a satellite office in my hometown and he ended up getting promoted to CEO of the company in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. He got moved to Ottawa. Yeah. And I remember him and I talking and he was like, no, I need, I'm going to, I want to hire you. I've never been a CEO before. A lot of what I got hired from were ideas that we came up with. I need you as a consultant. I'm going to put you on retainer. And then I was like, I don't know, man. And he's like, look, he's like, look, we have a thousand business clients. If you help me, every one of these businesses represents hundreds of staff and customers. So exactly what you said, I think that's just so powerful. You know, how many yep. lives you can touch. True. I think I like the way you put it. The number of lives you touch, basically, just the money, the title, all of those things are, to me, just icing in the cake. Knowing that you have some sort of impact with the people that, you know, you've come across in your life. I think that's, like you said, really powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to get, you want to get rich if you can, but how you make that money is really important. Mm -hmm. I just, I actually just sent an email out recently. I usually don't, I have our email newsletter. I usually don't get, I'm not, I'd say I'm spiritual, not religious. I don't really put that, I feel like in my emails, but I did this week and I, it was, Judas got the money. Judas got mm -hmm. the money. He got 30 pieces of silver. Right. He got the money. He wanted it. And then he couldn't give it away fast enough. He couldn't try to, he wanted, Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver for those that don't know. And then they arrested him and then they killed him. And while that was unfolding, he was like, he realized what he did and he was trying to get them to undo it. Just take the money. I'm sorry, but it was too late at that point. So I think, I think some people get it wrong where you can't be spiritual and rich. I think you can do both, but I think it means yeah. how you make the money is really important. I think that's a really thing. Yeah. There's no virtue in being broke. You can't help anybody. True. You know what? It's funny that you mentioned that because when I took the job with ISTA, believe it or not, and a lot of people don't believe it, I actually had to take a pay cut taking the job with this. I was part of a very big organization. I was part of probably, a I was a senior leader, but I wasn't an executive at that company because it's the biggest out there. Even if I don't name my names, I, you probably know who it is that I'm referring to. So I was just, I was just part of the machine. The amount of impact that I create is always going to be limited. When I had the opportunity to join ISSA Solutions, it gave me it gave me a perspective of, okay, you keep talking about things that you would do differently. You're being yeah. asked now to lead yeah. an entire organization. <laughs> you have a free hand in terms of whatever you want to do. So will you go for it? But the catch is you say you want to do it, but are you willing to sacrifice? And I thought about it long and hard, and I decided that the vision was more powerful. I don't have any, uh, I, I sound very or very idealistic when I tell people that I don't want to live, I don't have any, what do you call this, illusions, or ambition to own a very big house and multitudes of cars or that kind of lifestyle. 
I want to live comfortably, definitely, but none of those types of lifestyles. That's not something that resonates with me. So I, when I decided to take the pay cut, I knew that I could still live comfortably. And whatever it is I was losing, I was just telling myself it's the investment I'm making in terms right. of the vision that I want to realize. And I have not regretted it since then. It's been a powerful journey for me. And I keep telling everybody, similar to what you said about money, I tell them that compensation, salaries, things like that, that can never be your goal. Yeah. It's an outcome. Yep. You put in the work, yep. then the money comes. Yep. Now, how you get it, like you said, if you take the shortcut, then the money comes easy, the money goes easy as well. But if you don't take shortcuts, it might take you longer to get there. But once it's there, it's very difficult for people to take it away from you. Money, I think all money is easy come, easy go if you're not careful. But I get what you're saying 100%. And I think it's just, I could go and buy someone a medal right now and go, hey, here's an Olympic gold medal. And they just, they mm -hmm. would like, it wouldn't have meaning to them. But True. when they put in the hard work and effort and then they get tested and they actually win it, the same hunk of metal now has significance to them and sentimental value. And I think we're all going to die eventually. I, spoiler alert, none of us are going to get out of life alive. I just don't know if anyone has any, I know there's people talking about AI. As far as we know, in the history of this planet, everything that has lived has died and it's been dead longer than it's been alive. Yeah. So that's worth noting. So now what were some of the challenges? I'm sure it wasn't just, you just switched over and everything was sunshine and rainbows and it was a golden brick road and you clicked your heels and walked to, to success. Oh yeah. There are a lot of challenges, some personal, some organizational. Personally, mm -hmm. for me, the challenge was you had to, I had to unlearn certain things coming from big organizations, the way we do things and from an established footprint. And now you're having to start off from scratch where people don't know you, right? You don't have, you don't have the benefit of recall. You don't have the benefit of branding. And we didn't have the benefit of anything. We didn't have an actual mm -hmm. footprint. I think mm -hmm. I mentioned this to you when we were initially talking. We were in nine different rooms in five different condominium units in one of the oldest buildings in Makati. We were nobody. And I had to unlearn, I had to make sure I reset my expectations in terms of mm -hmm. what I'll be able to achieve as well as what I had to work with. I, I wasn't in an organization anymore where anything and everything that I needed is already there. Like I had to come up with everything that we needed. Right. And I had to make sure that I, I level set with both the people concerned, myself, um, as well as the, the stakeholders that, okay, uh, this is what we can achieve with what we have now. And this is how we build upon it. Organizationally, the biggest concerns that we had to face was restructuring. Actually, let me, let me correct myself, structuring. We really did structuring, <laughs> but they were existing before me. They were existing since 2015 already. And I, I, as you mentioned, we were about 127 employees already when I got there. That means a fair bunch of them have been there for quite a number of years that were used to a certain way of doing things that were not necessarily the way you're supposed to do it. And here I come trying to overhaul everything. So that was very challenging, putting an organization in place, putting a structure in place, uh, both for the people that were already there that had to embrace that as well as selling it to people coming in. Because mm -hmm. again, we were an un unknown brand. When you say ISTA in the past, ISTA is a solutions. Nobody really knew who we were. And for and, people and that are listening, that's I-S-T-A, ISTA. Correct. And in, in the past, you can't blame a lot, of the, a lot of the people here in the Philippines because contact centers in the Philippines here, they're, they're a lot. And the big players are the ones, no? And the smaller players, there's that stigma. There's that doubt that they might be up today and gone tomorrow. 
So people are a bit apprehensive about joining smaller call centers and smaller outsourcing companies. So I had to deal with that. And on top of that, trying to, like I said, make sure that we're not just trying to keep what we had, but there was one eye out to make sure that there's that vision to grow. That, those were my initial challenges, really. Basically, you had a blank page and you were told to go crazy, but knowing how to start and where to go crazy and what your limits are, that was very daunting to begin with. Got it. If you, what would you recommend to someone who might be starting out in that kind of a situation or struggling with that kind of a challenge? I think first, I think from a mindset perspective, you have to come in just like what I mentioned as well. They say tabula rasa, right? You have to come in like a black page. You have your experiences. They're for sure going to be valuable in guiding you, but don't make that your blueprint. Mm -hmm. Basically establish the fact that you're coming in fresh and there's no blueprint and you have to create your own. So having that mindset helps because it removes the restrictions of what you can and can't do. Because a lot of them is probably just based on your bias. So if you're able to come in with that, I think that's definitely winning uh, a big chunk of the battle out of the gates. And the second is you have to be able to strike a balance between celebrating small wins, but not using it to overcompensate for reaching the overall goal. Now, I say that because it, when I started with ISTA, I didn't have that balance. I remember my first year, after a year, I had a review with, the, with David, who actually put me, into, put me into the company. He owns a group of companies. We're part of his group of companies. It's called Town Group of Companies. So when we first had the review about ISTA, I came in thinking that the story wasn't so great. So I had told myself that in six months' time, we would have moved to a different, our own official site. took me about a year to get there. I said we would have grown <laughs> by this much. We didn't grow as much. So in my head, I was thinking, it's not such a good story. He actually opened my eyes and humbled me into, all right, those were your timelines. And it's good that you're hard on yourself, but look at everything. Look at everything around you. You were in a brand new office at that time. Look, not a year ago, we, were, we didn't have any of this. We couldn't even think or imagine this. You have mm. to stop and smell the roses. You have to stop mm. and appreciate that you did achieve certain mm-hmm. things. I didn't have that balance to begin with. I felt like I was still probably, what do you call that, a uh, remnants of my old organization where unless mm-hmm. you beat the goal or exceed it, it's still not good enough. Mm-hmm. Understanding that when you're starting out in a position like I am, and you're being asked to lead an entire group that has nothing to begin with. Anything that comes after that is something, right? Yeah. Being able to celebrate that, but not using it as a crutch that would allow that feel good shouldn't last too long so that you don't lose sight of the overall goal. I think that's well said. I, one of my favorite quotes about life is a musical thing. You're supposed to sing and dance while the music is playing. And yep. I think that's almost like what you're saying. Hey, live to your full potential, achieve all you can achieve, drink it all in, but at the same time, you don't want it to become monotonous and humdrum and that sort of thing. Yep. So I, yeah, I think that's a good point. And you mentioned this earlier, you were like, I had my roof and ramen paid for. That's what me and a buddy used to call it. when we were starting out, we're like we got roof and ramen, like we got our bill, our rent paid for, and we can afford hot noodle soup. That's you know, like it's yep. the noodle soup. As long as we got food in our belly and a roof over our head after that, it's all about just having fun and do, doing this the way we want to do it. Life, Hashtag life by design. That's what we used to always say. True. So can you maybe share an overview of the company right now and like your current goals? 
Sure. I think it's a solutions uh, for, as I mentioned earlier, we started out as a very small part of a group of companies of David Reisman. David Reisman mm -hmm. is the actual owner of the company. He His field of expertise is really in the healthcare space mm -hmm. in the U.S. He has a staffing agency called Town, and basically they provide different USRNs and physical therapists to long-term care facilities, short-term care facilities, and the like. They, went, they first went to the Philippines around 2007 under the that staffing agency arm. So essentially, they would get physical therapists here in the Philippines. They would train them, send them over to the U.S. After that, because they felt like, okay, I already have a presence in the Philippines. I have some back office work that I want to do for ourselves. Might as well do that in the Philippines. He was very well known in the tri-state area, the healthcare space, very well respected person. So those facilities, pharmacies, different organizations that he works with already said that, hey, you do that up the Philippines and at that cost, can you do that for me too? Mm. So it was just word of mouth. And then it grew and snowballed and it grew. So by 2015, like I said, they were already at 100 employees. That's when they started to think about, all right, this is no longer just a favor to my partner. Right, my partners. Right. It's now becoming a legitimate thing. And that's when they started really putting the investment in the company to try and make it into something. That being said, the background of the company is more in the healthcare space as well. So a lot of our, I would say right now, about 70% to 80% of our clients are in one way or another in the healthcare space. We work with pharmacies, long-term care facilities, revenue cycle management companies in terms of healthcare insurance, as well as laboratories and things like that. Because of how, because of how we're set up, we don't deal and do a lot of the traditional contact center and outsourcing work that you would see probably in other companies. We don't work with scaled services like hundreds or thousands of employees all doing the same flow of things or function uh, like customer service or technical support. We still have that, but not in that in, not in that size. We do a lot more of the complex work and right. it might not require bigger headcounts, which gave which makes our setup a little bit more challenging from a leadership and management standpoint because let's say you're a, let's say you're a, it's a big company out there, teleperformance or concentrics or teletech. You have one client, you have 300 people, or one client, 1,000 people. I have 1,000 people, and I have close to about 100 clients, right? Now, which means I have a client that's as big as 50 or 100, and I have clients as small as one or two. Right. It, it, the number of clients it manages just really a lot more exponential compared to how other bigger set setups are there in the Philippines. Right. And the, but the thing about what we do is it's also not monotonous, right? It's if you deal about the complexities, it's a little bit more difficult. You're dealing with medical specialization, yeah, payable, very specialized needs. So that's really where it's the is like I would say above or better compared to traditional contact center work, traditional yeah. outsourcing work, yeah, because we could deal with specialized and customized solutions for you. And we don't just say that's really what we what we've been doing these past four or five years. Yeah, I love that. There's something called the income earning ladder. A lot of people don't know about. And so the bottom rung is generalists and generalists earn, generalists earn what any generalist can earn. The dentist earns almost what any dentist can earn. And then above the dentist, you have the specialist and the specialist mm -hmm. will earn more than the dentist. And it's all because of a confidence and output. So what I mean is that if, you know, an orthodontist makes more than a dentist because they do mm -hmm. specialized work, the dentist might be able to figure it out, but I don't want to be the guinea pig. So I pay more for the specialist. And then the person that makes more than the specialist is the trainer of specialists. And it's because one, they can train, they train specialists. So that's another mm -hmm. income source. But also for me as the consumer, if I'm hiring a trainer of specialists, I know they might not be the best, 
but they can't be in the bottom 50%. So I have a greater confidence in the end result. And that's right. And then of course, the people that earn them more than everybody else are the celebrities because of supply and demand, right? Just that they auction off their time. So for you guys, I almost feel like, I don't know if I said this when we first talked, but the fact that you've leaned into specialized work, I think that is a huge advantage for you guys in terms of a niche and even just protecting, because if it's just low level generalist work, you're constantly going to have suicidal people coming into the market that are going to try to undercut your pricing. And if the mm-hmm. only if the only hedge you have against competitors is pricing, there's nothing stopping those people from entering the market. And they might be suicidal, okay, and they may not last, but they may last long enough to upset your they'll, app of cards. They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll hurt, yeah. Yeah. But if you're and a you specialist, yeah, yeah. You've got specialist tools, specialist training, specialist protocols. Right. There's yeah, there's like hard investments in that. I like that. And, and Daryl, because of that, this, that because of how we're set up, and I say this with a lot of respect to the people that were impacted during the pandemic and the lockdowns in the Philippines, we were probably one of the very few that did not experience any reduction in terms of business or headcount or hiring needs. Mm-hmm. If, if we didn't just we didn't just sustain, we actually had a need for more during a time where everybody was trying to cut headcounts. First, we were in the healthcare space and it's a pandemic. Everybody needed some form of healthcare. Second, like you said, we we do a lot of specialized needs. When you talk about the contact center, like you said, the scaled services are the simple one-on-ones, the basics, the customer service and things like that. You were mentioning AI. Once AI came in, once the automated, the self-help tools came in, that was the first things to go. We weren't as impacted because we don't, deal a lot with that. We still do, but we try to make sure that the type of customer service that we do are not the type that's going to be undercut easily from an AI perspective or anything right. like that. Very. Uh, when we speak with the clients, we talk to them about what their plans are and why they want to do face, why they want to do a person, an actual person in terms of the customer service to see if it's something legitimate and something that would last, or it's just something that's I'm going to take a few months and now I'm left with hundred employees and I don't know where to place them. I, I love that. I want to pause you right there for a second. So you're also selective about who you do business with. I think that initially, initially yeah. we were not, um, <laughs> but just like any, anyone starting out, we don't promise the heaven, the heaven and all the stars and things like that, but we do tell them we'll, we'll do everything we can to make it work. Initially, right. that's how it is. Now, I think we've gotten to a point where we don't, we don't just do it to protect our business, but we do it as well to make sure that people understand that we have integrity as a company and we want, to, we want to make sure that we're actually good partners to you, even if being a good partner means that we show you to the next door neighbor that can do it better. We're not going to try and just get um, get your money and be part of your wallet share when we know that we're not the right partners for you. We try to make sure that we do that as, as effectively as possible. We haven't had to do it a lot, but we won't shy away from having to advise a client or a prospective client and say, look, you might be better serviced by these people. The funny, and Daryl, I was just going to say, funny enough, there are some clients that even after we say that, still choose to sign up. Yeah. There's this one one service desk company. We already told them right off the bat, not a service desk company. We're not an IT kind of company. We don't do a lot of tech support. And they're looking for not your traditional tech support where you have hundreds of people. They're looking for like right. top top tier service desk, remote type of people that could do that type of work. And the ones that you pay probably compared to your traditional tech support people would be about, I would say about 200% more for compensation staff. That's the type of people they were looking for. Told them it's not going to be easy 
for us to look for these types of people. They still signed up. They waited. We had we it took it us months to fill in that role. Um, so there are that. still some that probably valued a lot more of the the honesty that we came to them and said, "Look, might not be the right ones for you." Besides, I think it was the honesty, but also I think what's coming through to me is that you're really looking to play long term games with long term people. And I think that there's merit in that because especially if you're trying to build a business, again, once there's different phases, right? And once you get out of the, just the survival, right? Now you want to have staying power. So you want Mm -hmm. someone that knows what they do want and almost more importantly, knows what they don't want and has long-term perspective. Like that's a huge asset. That's a huge asset. And that's not something that a lot of people put in their brochures. So now, how do you currently approach employee training and development within the company? We do a very, I would say that we have a very flexible, but very consistent way of managing it. Flexible because a lot of times our clients come to us and they either dictate how the training should go specific to their organization, or they don't have anything at all. And we need to be able to come up with something for them. We've established, we've established what we call the operational excellence group. So if you look at an organization and you would have different verticals in terms of their support departments, right? Training is one department, QA is one department, compliance is one department, L&D is one department. What we did was we created a department that's an amalgamation of all of that. So all those different support folks are actually under one umbrella, which creates a more seamless support system for operations. They're responsible for a lot of that training to go on, but they're also responsible to make sure that it smoothly transitions to the BAU guys, the operational guys who's gonna continue supporting that program from start to finish. So when we look at the way we train people, we look at our challenge are our challenges really are how do we maintain, how do we how would it take how do we take a client what they know how to do and customize that, localize that for the Philippine market to make sure that it's something easy to absorb and digest. Mm. for the folks that we're servicing. And like I said, we're not dealing with simple subjects. Right. I'm teaching somebody who has never done accounting work to do accounts payable. I'm teaching them to look at the ledger and find out if it matches and things like that. These do not. So the way we approach that is, is to make sure that the premium is not in English alone. Maybe it actually takes a little bit of a backseat, which is counterintuitive when you've grown in the industry in the Philippines because communications and English is number one. When you work with more complex skills, the, the understanding and their ability to absorb, to absorb that new skill they're trying to learn is more important than you trying to communicate back and forth in English, which right, is another right. thing I had to learn here at ISTA. Yeah. When I joined ISTA, I had to teach, I had to tell trainers, you got to do it in a mix. You got to train in a mix of Filipino and English because... If they're not getting it because you continuously talk to them in straight English, it doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. That was something that I thought I would never say or give us an advice to a trainer in the BPO space in the Philippines. I love that. Because we've always been taught to train in English, 100%. Yeah. That's because it's not what you say. It's what you what's what they hear. And it makes me, it reminded me, I lived in Tokyo for three years. I used to work for Shinsei Bank and Johnson stuff and Tokyo Electron and uh, the consulting there. And I remember... When I was coming back after three years in Tokyo, I was going back to Canada and I was like, I'm so grateful I'm going to go back to Canada because everyone there will speak English. So I'll have no more communication, like miscommunication problems. Yeah. It'll be so much easier to communicate with everybody once everybody speaks English. And then when I got to Canada, I was still like, why are we still having communication issues? And I realized that language was not the main reason. A lot of it was just just 
communication with people. It's not what you say, it's what they hear. So I feel like that's what you're almost saying. You're like, at the end of the day, it's making sure that they understand versus trying to conform to something, which I think is, Correct. yeah. Uh, and when you talk about, you mentioned communication. I'm just going to slide that in there. This is good advice probably to everybody else as well. Um, communication to me has been very easy because of one very, one very simple philosophy. I just don't forget how it is to be at the level of the people that I'm trying to communicate with. So the three years that I did as a frontline person, being at the agent level, to this day is probably what makes my job or what allows me to do my job more effectively. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I dare say easier than it should be because it allows me to be able to relate to them. It allows me to be able to call their bluff when I know that it's not true. <laughs> because I lived that life. I lived that life. I was a paycheck to paycheck employee, just like the rest of the other agents probably in the Philippines. I was one of those people that were also wanting to see how I climb up the corporate ladder. I understood all of that. And at the same time, I was a learner too. I was getting trained as well. I know what works. I know what doesn't. So all of these things allowed me to make sure that when we create our DNA as a company, it anchors on that belief that we never forget how it is to be those types of employees. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't forget, we could easily relate to them. We could customize what we do for them, which hopefully turns into a happier place for them to work in. And more effective tools that are designed around them rather than making them work around the tools, right? Mm-hmm. So those are, to me, I think that's sage advice right there. I wish I yeah. could own it, but I'm sure that I got it from somebody else in the past. Just don't forget how it is to be at that level and it's going to guide you all throughout. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really powerful. One of my favorite books I'm working with people is How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that's just a fantastic, timeless book. And a lot of it is about taking care of the person but understanding from their point of view. Now, are there specific skills or behaviors that you feel are important for staff in general? Yes. Skills, I think you have to, given the kind of of functions that we do, we need people that are not, that are a bit more outside the box thinking. You don't have to come out of the gates having all of these ideas, but you have to at least be open to them. Which is very difficult because in the outsourcing space and in the Philippines, a lot of the initial accounts and clients that you work with give you need cookie cutter people, right? You they give you a script, you follow it, you can't miss a beat, and that's how you're also measured whether you're good or bad at what you do. So I think the, your ability to think outside the box and make sure that you're open to different things is one of the things that I'm looking for. Patience, both with themselves as well as with the organization like us is also a critical component because you're not going to come in and make a change or be better in a month uh, or in in two months even. It's probably going to take longer than that. And I think that's very timely to talk about because the current generation of people, a lot of things, they're used to a lot of things that are instantaneous. Yeah. So the patience is not as much there as it was during my time in the workforce. Now the workforce I'm dealing with, you have to constantly remind them that it's not two months, it's not a long time. So I think that's critical. And last but not the least, the learner mindset. I, I I think when you, that's why when you ask, are there any particular skills? A lot of the things I'm giving you right now might seem abstract. They're soft skills but, and they're really important. Right. Because at the end of the day, all of those actual competencies and functions you want them to learn, they're tradable. But you have to come in with that mindset that, okay, I can learn this rather than it's too difficult for me. Yeah. So yeah. if you have, I think if you have the patience, you have the learner mentality and you're open to trying out different things outside of what the norm is. 
I think those are the critical things that I would say are very important. And that's also something that I'm looking for primarily in the leadership and the management that we're looking for. Free mm. press for me because we're actually looking for more leaders and more managers. But that's also what I'm looking for. In the BPO space, you have thousands and thousands of people. You promote people as supervisors and managers. What you really get are not real supervisors or managers, not leaders. They're just soldiers that could make other people follow. When I say what I mean by that is they're also just following a set of rules. So some of the people that I've gotten from other companies that I take to out to us, their biggest struggle is understanding that it's now you giving the orders. You're not going to wait for somebody else to try and give you what the steps are. Because we've gotten so good to calling ourselves leaders when in reality, we're just following one to 10 as well, right? So now when I get people that it's very difficult to look for that type of person because you look at their resume and their experience and they say they've been a, a supervisor, a manager, a director, other places, and you get them and you still get a soldier. And in my comp in the company that I'm in right now, when I get them at that level, I expect that it's somebody that could run their own, be self-sustaining, ask for help, of course, as much as possible uh, when they need it, but somebody that could run on their own. But what I'm getting are people that, okay, so what do I do? <laughs> They're very good at following, definitely. So now it's that, like I said, I'm using this opportunity, hopefully, to when whoever's going to be listening, that's more important. That's the ones that we're looking for. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I don't know if I mentioned this or not. I have my own track record. We've done 400 plus interviews, but everybody was arguing about the science. And I, the man that raised me, he worked in applied physics and geology, so hard sciences. So it made me think, a lot of what I'm doing is kind of opinion and no one's really sharing their tax returns. So how do you really know what works when a guru gets on stage and says, follow this? So I said, what does the science have to say about business success? So I spent 50,000 of my own money to hire seven research teams to help me go through all the academic literature to look at all the research on business success. And we looked at all these studies and meta-analyses and systemic reviews. And we mapped out all the factors that they proved or some proved that certain things didn't help and what helped. And we tried to figure out like, what are, like, how do we make sense of this? We managed to figure out eight critical success factors. And then for each factor, we actually could identify the sub factors for success in that. One of them was self-efficacy, right? Self-efficacy. That's why there's time management and productivity is like a big thing. And part of self-efficacy we learned is leadership skills. But what is leadership? Because there's all sorts of leadership training, but it's have a vision, have a goal, all this the visions and the goals from our research actually come from your strategic planning based on your market intelligence. Yes. So leadership is not necessarily about having the vision. It is a little bit, but it's about self-awareness, communication, cooperation skills, emotional mm -hmm. intelligence, and adaptability. That is what leadership is. Now, self-efficacy is certain leadership skills, like I mentioned, personality traits and disciplines, right? Like time management, having yeah. discipline in general, personality traits, having a locus of control. Being a, which means being a control freak about what you can control, being extrovert. How are you going to lead mm -hmm. people if you're, if you can't, if you can't talk to them, if you're right. too shy, openness to experience, which is what you mentioned, agreeableness, because we mm -hmm. got to work together, conscientiousness, you're working with other and acceptance of criticism and feedback that that is leadership. It's not the, like you mentioned, the order taker that just barks orders and smacks people if they don't follow what they're supposed to do. I think what you said is it, perfectly in line with what we've discovered. Do you feel like there's been any certain habits that have really helped you on the path to growing the company like you have? Well, certainly. Habits have been formed because, like I said, credit where credit is due. I have been given opportunities to learn 
different facets and different departments of the outsourcing space and business in general. And that has helped me come in, not be not come into this position being multifaceted. A lot of the times when you work with big organizations, even outside of the BPO, even in traditional companies and industries, what you're hired for, that department is where you're going to die. That's it. If you're hired as a trainer, <laughs> you're going to be in the training department up until you resign or you quit or whatever. If you're in the HR space, if you're in the operations, that's how you go. That's the entire path. I've been lucky enough to have been exposed to a multitude of different positions and different departments. And I owe that to, to my mentor because nobody really want, likes to take those types of chances, especially not a leadership position. Mm-hmm. I, I probably had a big mouth. I kept telling, I was in training, kept telling operations not doing it right. I finally got my boss telling me, you keep saying that, you go do it. And then I had, that probably made it work for me at that time because I kept saying I could make it work. There was no way I was going to fail. I was going to do anything and everything <laughs> in my power to make it work. <laughs> so not that I was good, that it was not that I was great, but I was just not willing to fail. But that became what happened. Every couple of years, I was moving to something else. I was in training, I was in operations, then I was in training and quality. And then I did operational assessment or business consultancy. Because of all of these different experiences, I now have, when I came in to what I do now, I was more prepared for it. I was able to help out in the different departments and not just operations. I was able to really look at it from a business owner standpoint. Um, anything that had to do with operations to the support groups that it entailed to putting up a company from scratch, identifying sites and doing the site selection mm-hmm. strategies and everything else. I think that was pretty, pretty useful for me when it came to what I do now. Apart from that, I think really it's, I mentioned it already earlier, just not forgetting really. We're dealing with people. And I think not forgetting that part that you're dealing with people and that where they came from is where you were before, I think makes everything just so easy. I love that. Yeah, because a company, all a company is is a group of people solving the pain of another group of people and they do it via a product or service. So that human element, like AI, I I liken an AI, I've been saying this a lot lately, but to me, it's just a fancy calculator. Yes. Even my, my partner, my girlfriend, my, my wife, I call her my wife, we're not married, but it's almost seven years. You know, even in her business, we use software and robots and AI to reduce the need of her from having 15 people to three, but it's, it's allowed her to onboard and work with more clients. And now she's rehiring some of those people back. And I just say, it's just a fancy calculator in a lot of ways. Like you mentioned accounting. Back in the day, the accountants and bookkeepers used to have to do the math themselves. And the productive ones were okay. And then the unproductive ones were not. And then the calculators came out. And all that did was make the productive people more productive. And it gave the unproductive ones no excuse. Because they can't say, oh, I had to count to 117 times. No, you didn't. You just had to punch four buttons and it was done. And even right now, we're already cyborgs. You and I are using technology right? Like you're not hearing my natural voice. Like I'm speaking into a mic that's turning my voice into ones and zeros and sending it like we're on different sides of the country. So we're already cyborgs. I just, you know, people talk about AI, the Turing test and things like that. And I've actually done a lot of research in that. I don't know if we're going to get to fully sentient AI before we really merge with it more. I think it's always just going to be like predictive assistant. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. I think it's, yeah. I think even the outsourcing space, I don't think it's ever going to go away, even with the advent of AI. I think it's mostly going to be changing how you utilize the human component of it. You gave the perfect analogy. You're giving now tools 
through AI for most simple of tasks to be able to, to for them to be able to help themselves or do it on their own. The people aspect now comes in for a lot more of the complex conversations and the complex things. Um, so I think we just changed the way we use the human component, but I don't think it's ever going away. Yeah. We got rid of horses and replaced them with cars. Like all we can, the list is long. And there was a study too. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher some of the details, forgive me, but it might even get the animal wrong, but somebody studied how like the speed of animals on the planet, how fast they can go from point A to point B. And the fastest animal on the planet was like the Commodore bird or something like that. And then humans were, we were like in the bottom third. But then when they actually took into account a human on a bicycle, we were way faster than the fastest animal uh, that was in, in the study. Again, I'm probably butchering details, but the idea was that what wasn't taken into account was that we create tools. And that has always been our advantage in the world is that we create tools to help us and help us be more. So I think that's really powerful. Now, speaking of the future, where do you think the future of this industry is going? Like, where do you think things will be in five, 10 years? I think there will be more and more companies like us, which makes it more and more difficult for us. I think you're going to see less and less of um, the consolidated hundreds or thousands of employees servicing one account, doing simple work. Because like I said, like you said, self-help is already available. AI is already available. A lot of the companies would go down that direction. Their need for the human component would be more towards the complex functions, which is what we do. It would also mean that you will have to have more diversified service offerings, just like what we have. So you're not going to get the type of services, the type of servicing companies right now where you have, oh, when you want to go to medical coding, you go to this company because they specialize. It's going to be difficult for you to sustain that unless it's a really, actually, that might not be a good example because if it's medical coding, then you probably would be able to sustain it. But let's say you're a big organization, you're saying, go to us for customer service. That's going to be tough, right? So you're going to get a lot more companies like us, which might not be very big headcount-wise before, but are servicing more and more clients, which means that there will be a lot more premium, like I said, from a leadership standpoint. Because the ratios that you used to have in terms of managing clients and managing people in a more complex, diversified type of company, that doubles or triples. Right. A person before that can manage 15 people, a supervisor before that can manage 15 people because the task is simple, is now going to be probably one is to four, one is to five, probably as the new ratio, because you're dealing with more complex items that means mm-hmm. a bit more, a more set of eyes looking at it, more evaluation happening. So I think it's going to be very healthy for the people that want to get out of the the biggest problem before people always say it's the type of work that's robotic, monotonous, and I think you can have less of that. that yeah. So the people that want to carve out a career in the BPO industry that hated that fact, welcome back. You guys can come back now because it's not <laughs> going to be like that now. But and the leaders that felt like it was very difficult for them to climb up the corporate ladder for one reason or another, there's going to be more and more need for that. But like I said, not the type of supervisor that you probably had in the contact center. It's a different type of real legitimate supervisor now. Right. Um, right so right. I think that's really the direction from a business standpoint where the industry is going. Yeah, it sounds almost cyclical to me because before the industrial revolution, everything was specialized. You get mm-hmm. your clothes and a tailor would True. make them for you. Your shoes were handmade for you. And then we had the industrial revolution where it was prefabricated everything and you'd get 70. That's why we have shoe sizes, right? Which box do you fit in? And now you talk about now it's going to become specialized again. And I, that really makes sense. 
this has been a great call. I've got a couple of pages of notes here. I think this has been fantastic. People may want to listen to it more than once. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that I should have asked you about? I don't know, but I guess the only thing I could really think of is a lot of times people have a disconnect with when they're talking to or when they listen to somebody that's probably in a position of success. A lot of people, a lot of times people find it very difficult to believe or relate mm. because they think that, sure, you say that because you're there. That's right, the usual right. comment you get. So if there's anything that I would probably want to close with or end with is I'm here because I was there where you are. And I've been there probably far longer than you think. <laughs> so if there's anything that I would probably want people to take away from this is the story of success is a lot closer to you and a lot more real to you than you think. I used to tell this wonderful story of how I come from very hard times. Um, and if I say it now, I'll turn this upside down. This podcast is going to be more like a drama TV series if I tell you exactly where I came from and what I used to do and how I, what the things I had to do to get by to, to a point where now when I look back, I'm like, I still don't know how I got here. Yeah. But I think that's the beauty of it. And to everybody probably just listening and who, who does not think it's possible, I'm just here to tell you that I'm just like you. I'm a chip off the old block. In the Philippines, I'm just, you probably know this word, I was a tambay too. Which, by the way, I'm going to go brand Ista as Istambay moving forward. I'm trying to play around with that word. But I was, I come from very humble beginnings. More than more than you could think. And uh, to anybody that's listening probably needs to hear it. That success that you think is too far away, a lot closer than you think. Yeah, I think that's a great message. And if, thank you so much. And if people want to reach out and get in touch with you, get in touch with ISTA Solutions, where should they go? You could go to our website. There's a way for, for you to contact us there. It's istasolutions.com. Add me up on LinkedIn. I'll make sure to hit you up and reply. I manage it myself. Um, so if you guys want to look me up, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Just look for Neil Samson as well there. My email address is the same, neo.samson neo at distrosolutions.com. We have a lot of hiring needs right now, so using <laughs> this opportunity. Get some top talent. So that's neo, N-E-O, like the matrix, neo.samson, S-A-M-S-O-N, at istasolutions.com. So that's the email, plus that's the website, I-S-T-A solutions.com. Go find them, go look them up on LinkedIn, go contact the company. Reach out, let them know if you have any questions, comments, concerns. Neo, again, thank you so much. I know you've got thousands of staff that you could be serving and coaching right now. And so thank you for coming and sharing with my audience and helping us all perform better. No worries. Appreciate the invite and the opportunity to reach out to your audience as well.